Well, good morning, church family. It's good to look out and see all of you all. And uh, if this is, happens to be your first time with us, I want to extend to you a very special welcome. We're glad that you're worshiping the Lord with us. Uh, before we begin uh, the message, I wanted to share a brief video with you from one of our mission partners in Eastern Europe. Uh, as, as you know, uh, just over two months ago, Russia invaded Ukraine, and I'm sure you've seen on the news uh, just the terrible carnage, uh, the loss of life, the destruction that has ensued. Uh, th thanks to your generous giving, our church has been able to give just over $14,000 to ministries who are serving as the hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of this crisis. There's been over uh, 5 million refugees, uh, plus many, many more who have been displaced from their home. And I, I want to highlight one of those uh, ministries with you that we've been able to come alongside. Uh, we, we've been able to partner with a, a network of small but very vibrant churches in Poland and Ukraine that are, are, are gospel-minded like us. And uh, the, these believers are stepping up in a very big way to be Jesus right now in the midst of this crisis. And so the way that uh, this is working are these, these church volunteers from Poland are loading up vans full of supplies, and they're driving it into western Ukraine. And then once the supplies arrive in western Ukraine, there are pastors there, members of those churches who are taking the vans that are full of food and, and medical aid, and they're driving it to the front lines where they're needed most, places where the, the, the western aid organizations aren't even going. It costs approximately $4,000 to fill a van full of food and medical supplies, and that's two times the average monthly salary in Poland. And so our, our brothers and sisters are, are grateful for the financial assistance that's helping to fuel this work. And one of my friends, um, Andrzej, who is Polish, and he's a part of this network of, of churches, he's participated in um, several of these convoys. And he passed along a video that his daughter made during one of the supply runs a few weeks ago. And I just wanted to share that with you now. Can we just take a moment and pray for our brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord who are over there in Ukraine right now? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I, I just think of what you tell us in your word, that you are the Lord of peace. And we pray that you would bring your peace to this situation. We pray that you would influence the hearts and the minds of those who have the power to stop war and to bring an end to the bloodshed. Lord, we pray that you would be with those who are suffering. Lord, we pray your comfort upon those who are bereaved. We pray your provision for those who have lost so much and are uncertain of what tomorrow may bring. Lord, we pray your protection upon those who are in harm's way. Lord, we pray for your blessed assurance on, on those who are anxious. And Lord, we pray uh, just by your mighty power that you would strengthen your church there in Eastern Europe. Would you pour out your spirit and would you give them your strength so that they can carry on your work by your grace? And we pray that the glorious light of the gospel that's revealed in Jesus Christ would be made known there. And Lord, now for us, as we look at your word, 
We invite you to come and to search our hearts and minds and pray that you would reveal to us wonderful things from your word so that we might be the people that you would want us to be and that we would receive from you what you would want to give us in this hour. And we ask it in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I'm going to invite you to meet me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 26. If you've been with us for the past three months, you'll recall this reoccurring question that has been raised in Luke's Gospel. It's asked by the Pharisees in chapter 5. It's asked by John the Baptist in chapter 7. Uh, later in chapter 7, uh, if you recall from three weeks ago, it's asked uh, by the dinner guests who were there at the Pharisee's house. Perhaps you recall how that chapter ends. This woman comes and she anoints Jesus' feet with ointment. And then Jesus says to her that your sins are forgiven. And next we read this. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is Jesus? That's the big question. If you look back one paragraph from the, the passage Molly just read for us, Jesus calms the wind and the raging sea that had threatened to capsize the boat that he was in with his disciples. And do you remember the response of the disciples? It says, and they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Who then is Jesus? That's a, that's a big question, and it's, it's, it's a question uh, worth, worth answering. All of us need to have an answer to this. Is, is, is Jesus just some enlightened and ethical, ethical teacher that has a, a higher God consciousness than the rest of us, or is He something more? In our passage today, we are going to receive an answer to the question from a very unlikely source. Uh, just to set the stage, Jesus and his disciples are sailing to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, a region that's known as uh, the Decapolis. It was largely Gentile. And you have to marvel at the way Luke so matter-of-factly records what transpires. He says, when, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. It's like, okay, Luke, we, we get that you're a doctor and you're a just-the-facts kind of guy. But, I mean, really, th this, is so, this is a completely, like, dispassionate and, and objective account of what was most certainly a shocking event. If you or I had been there and we had witnessed this, there is no way that we would be recounting what had happened with, with just such a calm, uh, matter-of-fact kind of way. It's like, really? That, so so let's, just, you know, let's just kind of enter into this for a moment, just, just to help us wrap our minds around the scene. When Luke says for a long time he had been without clothes, he's saying, this was a naked dude. <laughs> All right? And, and when he says there met him a man from the city, we shouldn't exactly like picture this man you know, walking towards Jesus on the beach, waving his arms, saying hello. This isn't like baggage claim at the airport where the guy's standing there with, with a sign that says Jesus on it. 
He, he is most certainly not walking nonchalantly towards Jesus. And, and this guy definitely isn't greeting team material, all right? This, this is one of the few incidents where um, the gospel of Mark, Mark actually provides a few more details than Luke. And Mark says that when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran towards him. So, so Jesus and the disciples, they dock in, the, in this unfamiliar Gentile territory. Uh, they step out of the boat, and this unkept, unshaven, naked guy comes screaming and racing towards them from the tombs. And you thought the Jersey Shore was crazy. <laughs> the Gerasene Shore, that's crazy. Now, now, if you're a disciple, what are you doing at this point in time? You're back in the boat, aren't you? You got your hands on the oar and you're ready to get out of there. Trips over Jesus, let's go. Back to the other side. But guess who's not back in the boat? Jesus. He's still hanging out on the shoreline. Now, before we go too far into the passage, it might be helpful to address a question some of you might be asking, and that question is this. I mean, who's to say this guy's really possessed by demons? I mean, isn't it fair to say that people back then didn't have the same scientific understanding we have today? And so when the ancients saw something they couldn't explain, they just, they just chalked it up to some supernatural cause. And today, we, we know that thunderstorms aren't the result of like Zeus getting angry and hurling thunderbolts to earth. We know there's a, there's a natural explanation for that. There's, there's pressure systems, there, there's lift, uh, there's, there, there's real scientific causes for this that can be explained. So likewise, I mean, this man probably, he just, he suffered some, from some psychological disorder that they didn't understand back then. And if you're asking that question, I want to offer two comments for your consideration. First, uh, let's just observe that the gospel writers were capable of making a distinction between a physiological issue and demon possession. For instance, in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 24, we read this, And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Uh, in another translation, seizures, you, you could translate that epilepsy. And, and so uh, the gospel writers, uh, we, we see that they could differentiate between demon possession and a neurological disorder like, like epilepsy that could bring on convulsions. The, the second comment is that we need to be on guard against our own cultural arrogance. And the height of arrogance is just to assume that because you know, we're from a, a culture that might be more advanced technologically, that we can look down our noses intellectually on those who might come from a different culture. And, and so just, just to get a, a different perspective, I called up an old friend from seminary, and somehow I managed to only record him on the Zoom call, but it's my voice you'll hear in the background, and, and I wanted to, you to hear what he, just his perspective on this. All right, church family, I want you to meet my friend Ranjit. We went to seminary together in Dallas. And Ranjit, you're no longer living in Dallas. Where, where are you now and uh, what are you up to? Yes, we live in uh, New Delhi, India. That's the capital of India. Uh, so we've lived here for the last 11 years since our graduation uh, back in 2010 from Dallas Seminary. Uh, New Delhi, I don't know if you're familiar, but New Delhi is the second largest city in the world with uh, 25 million people. 
less than 1% uh, who uh, know Christ. So it's a much needy city, but also a very significant city in India. So we love being here and uh, we've been uh, we've been involved in planting uh, a church. We've worked in other churches and stuff, but recently, the last three years, uh, we planted New City Delhi, uh, especially for English-speaking urban young professionals uh, in the heart of Delhi. So that's what we're doing. That's awesome, man. We're preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and we're at this passage where Jesus has an encounter with a man who's possessed by demons. What's, what's the mindset yeah. of the person that's going to hear this in, in India for the first time, this passage? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, right? So uh, uh, well, we do have similar obstacles, uh, but uh, our experience of spirituality in India is very different, right? So like in the U.S., uh, I think the first instinct is to think of something like this as mental illness or uh, something to do with uh, with uh, something mental related, right? So uh, like I remember when I was in seminary, uh, in one of the classes, the theology class, there was a video that was played by the professor. And uh, in the video, uh, there was a young girl who was talking about how she would uh, talk to uh, Angel Michael, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and then we had to discuss in the class. And most of the discussion was around how this girl had maybe some kind of mental illness or something, right? Uh, but the guys from India, right, we, we were discussing, this is clearly a demon possession, right? This is not mental illness, right? So, so even how we look at an issue, right? I think uh, it's, it's, it's very different from uh, how your experiences shape how we look at it, right? So, so in India, uh, most of our spirituality, and I'm not talking about Christianity, I'm talking about the majority of religion here, uh, they, they are very comfortable with spirituality. They are comfortable with uh, with the uh, with spirits and demons and they are they worship spirits so some of the activity is very real for us right and even if uh, you've not seen demon possession there's definitely demonic oppression all around uh, so so when I preach this text in India people won't be surprised I mean they they won't they may not have experienced things uh, but it won't be surprising for them so that's the angle that's the way we would approach something like this. And I think this might lead into my next question, uh, just what you were saying there at the end. But any thoughts on why it would appear to be that um, demon possession might be more prevalent in countries where people are more spiritual than, say, uh, Western Europe, the United States? Yeah. So let, let me let me uh, let, let me say this. Right. So even in New Delhi. Right, and this is this is where I don't understand. Right, uh, just like you. Right, uh, so we we work among English-speaking professionals, and most of them are college-educated. Uh, uh, I mean, they work in good jobs. Uh, we we've never seen a demonic activity, right, in in our church. Uh, though people uh, are from non-Christian backgrounds and all that stuff, but but down the down the line, we have a, another church which is a Hindi-speaking congregation. Right, uh, it's a it's a local language church. I mean, they have demonic activity every Sunday, right? Every, anytime they worship and there's non-Christians coming in for the worship, uh, there's at least one or two uh, demonic activity, right? Uh, just down, down the road, right? So, uh, so one, one of the things we joke about is maybe we think Indian demons don't understand English, right? So maybe they are not, <laughs> they are not, I don't know. No, but, but what is it? I, I don't understand, right? So one thing, uh, we could think about is see definitely the the there is a spiritual reality. Uh, maybe there are people who 
directly worship, right? And maybe in, our, in my context, uh, they don't not they are they are more cultural uh, Hindus rather than really practicing Hindus. Uh, but there are people who really worship demons and they take food that is offered to them and they uh, I mean there are there are significant spirits they worship, right? So maybe uh, that is part of uh, have to do with the way they are possessed and they are oppressed. Uh, so so I, so I don't know, but this is a reality even in Delhi, right? Even even in our own context. So yeah. Well, I, I found that to be helpful, and, and, and I hope you did too. Uh, you know, I, I can't say for sure why demonic possession uh, seems to be more common, perhaps in Jesus' day or in, in other regions of the world than it is here. Uh, but I also think of something that, that Pastor David shared with me earlier in the week. Uh, I think he had a really helpful answer to the question. He said, uh, you know, remember what C.S. Lewis said in his introduction to the screw tape letters, and I'll just I'll share that with you now. Uh, Lewis wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Uh, Now, in our culture, we have way more materialists than we do magicians, don't we? So, so I suspect that's why we don't see as much demon possession. But like my friend Ranjit said, that doesn't mean there isn't demonic activity going on, because I think Satan's equally pleased if he can convince people to deny the existence of anything spiritual or transcendent. It's just a different strategy to achieve the same goal. Now, now Luke doesn't record this particular episode in the life of Jesus to give us a primer on demonology. So we're going to move on to the big idea. And you can email any lingering questions you might have to tabletalk at riveroakschurch.org. And then every Tuesday at noon, you go check out our YouTube channel. We'll answer the questions from the past week. So I just want to remind you of that. So what is the big idea? Well, over the past four chapters, Jesus has overcome a variety of forces that war against mankind. He's encountered sickness and disease and a storm that threatened to capsize their boat. And in every situation, Jesus has performed a miracle that demonstrates his authority over these forces. Now Jesus steps out of the boat and he's confronted with a new challenge. There's this showdown. This isn't Jesus versus a demon. It's more than that. This is Jesus versus a man that's possessed by multiple demons. In fact, in verse 30, the spokesman for the demons identified himself by the name Legion. A a legion in in, in the Roman army consisted of 6,000 men. And I don't think we necessarily need to take this as to be like a literal exact number, but suffice it to say this man was possessed by many demons. And this gave him superhuman strength. We're told that he was, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. So this was some serious strength. And what happens when these demons who are, are, are legion in number and powerful enough to break chains encounter Jesus? Well, for once, the strength of the demoniac does not prevail. This isn't even a contest. Jesus doesn't have to gird up his loins for action. He doesn't have to roll up his sleeves. He doesn't have to say, you know, here, Peter, hold my cell phone. 
you know, let me get my stuff out of my pockets. He doesn't even break a sweat. Look with me at verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The demoniac does three things. First, there's prostration. The demons fall down before Jesus. This is what people do in the presence of kings and queens. It's a sign of submission. There's also confession. Who is this man? Well, it's interesting. The demons know the answer to that question. He is the son of the Most High God. He, he is the one with the authority and the power of God Almighty. He is the God-man. And then finally, we see that there is supplication. The, the, the demoniac pleads with Jesus, I beg you, do not torment me. And then again in verse 31, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. In the book of Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, this is where Satan is bound and thrown. The abyss is the destiny of the devil and his angels. Now, these demons knew what the future held. They knew their destiny. And despite their, their overwhelming number and their superhuman strength, they know who has authority over them. And, and fearing confinement, the demons make a very interesting request. Since Jesus would not permit these evil spirits to indwell a man, it would seem that they reasoned that an animal would do. Anything would be better than the abyss. So look with me at verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now I realize this raises a host of, of thorny questions, but we, we, here's what I'd say. We, we can't try and extract answers to questions the gospel writer did not intend to address. Here's just what we can observe from this. It would seem from Jesus' perspective that the rescue and the salvation of one human being is of far greater value than a herd of pigs. Jesus created the world, and he makes a distinction between human beings and the beasts of the field. He said elsewhere when he was teaching to some people, he said, you are of more value than many sparrows. And that's because we as human beings were created in God's image. We're stamped in His likeness. And, and we are given a capacity that the animals don't have, and that is to have relationship, to have fellowship with God. Now, we also need to remember that the demons were the ones who asked to go into the pigs. This outcome, it, it might seem cruel, but the death of the pigs was the result of the demons, and this isn't some idea that Jesus conjured up. One thing is clear. The effect of the exorcism was immediate, and it was very visible. Verse 34 tells us that when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed." Jesus brought about a complete reversal in this man's life. Whereas the man had gone about naked, he's now clothed. Whereas he's been roaming among the tombs, he's now seated at the feet of Jesus. Whereas he is 
isolated himself previously. Now he's comfortable conversing with others, whereas before he'd been crying about in a loud voice. He is now of sound mind. This man is an exhibit of Jesus' power. And, And it's interesting to note the contrasting responses to this miracle. The, the, the people in the surrounding countryside and the town, they saw the evidence of Jesus' power, and how do they respond in verse 37? What, what, do, what do we see? They're seized with fear, and, and, and they send Jesus away. They ask Him to depart. Luke isn't entirely clear on the reason why this request is made. Uh, some have argued that uh, Jesus uh, was asked to depart out of, out of concern for their financial well-being. The, the loss of the herd might have had a, a negative impact on, on their profit shares, and they're worried about what His presence might mean for their economy. Others have suggested that, that the crowd is simply overcome with, with the supernatural, Jesus' power, and they want nothing to do with it. They like the status quo. They're happy with their life the way it is. They don't want to welcome someone whose power might disrupt their lives, someone who might reorder things. I mean, whatever the case, don't miss the irony here, that it's, it's the unlikeliest individual of all, the man who's possessed by demons, who experiences salvation, and it's all the, the normal people that miss out. So that's one response. There's, there's the people that put distance between themselves and Jesus. But we see the man from whom the demons have gone out, he has a totally different response to Jesus. He responds in faith. He's ready to climb in the boat in verse 38. It says that he begged to go with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You know, sometimes the idea of just running off to be with Jesus might seem appealing. Uh, There's something, I think, about being in His presence that, you know, we want that. We desire that. It can feel better than remaining where we're at. I I think about uh, where, where this particular man found himself. He's in a region now where the people don't exactly seem receptive to God, and maybe that's how you feel about your workplace or your school or, you know, your culture. But Jesus says to this man, go, go into the darkness and be my witness. And I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, one day up in heaven, we're going to meet people who came to faith because of the testimony, because of the obedience of this man. I know uh, evangelism, that just, you, just, you know, that can seem like a really intimidating thing. That's a scary word. But just, just catch what Jesus asked this man to do. Did he, did he say, um, all right, I need you to take a couple of apologetics courses. I, I need you to read through the entire Old Testament. Uh, I need you to memorize some verses. And once you have that done, then you can go out and I want you to start being a, my ambassador. Did he ask that of him? No, he just said, just do one thing. Just, just go and tell the people what God has done for you. At the end of the day, that's, that, that's what God wants us to do. Just, just share that. And, and it's not because Jesus needs a hype man. It's, it's because He wants all people to come to know Him. 
We, we see the demoniac isn't the only one who, who is, ends up sitting at Jesus' feet in Luke's gospel. You know, in, in Luke 7, who we find sitting at Jesus' feet? A woman with a, uh, a really checkered past. Uh, a woman who is um, known as a sinner in her community. And uh, Luke 10, we, we find uh, a woman at Jesus' feet who rejects the kitchen. In, in, in chapter 17, we find a Samaritan. Jesus welcomes anyone to come and, and, and to sit at his feet. And the same goes for us. You see, what Jesus did for this man is illustrative of what he wants to do for us. And you might say, well, yeah, I don't really need rescuing like that. I kind of have my wits about me. I lead a pretty normal life. I'm not possessed by any demons. Well, here's the thing. The Bible says that, that apart from Jesus, we're all in bondage. It's just the degree to which we're enslaved that differs. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it like this. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, apart from an encounter with Jesus, all of us are just like the demoniac in some regard. We're in bondage. We're, we're caught up in carrying out our own desires, and we need to be restored to our senses. We need the mind of Christ given to us so that we'll no longer be conformed to the pattern of the world, but we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, what we shouldn't do is read this passage and think, wow, that guy, you know, he had some serious problems. I'm glad I'm not like that. No, what we should be thinking is like, wow, if, 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 if that man's bondage was such, and Jesus was able to rescue him, then Jesus can certainly rescue me too. And so the question is, how are you going to respond to this revelation of Jesus' power? Like the townspeople, do you just kind of want to put some distance between you and Jesus? You say, hey, I don't know if I want to welcome that. I don't, he might come in and he might go changing some things around. Do you keep him at arm's bay? Or are you like the man who's healed? Do you want to draw near? Is his power a great comfort? And do you say, I want to align my life with yours. I want to come in. I want to welcome you to call the shots. If you have never invited Jesus to do that in your life, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We've seen his power. We've seen the way he displays it. We've seen the revelation that he is the son of the most high God. And the question is, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to embrace it, or are we going to ask him to depart? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you would send your son to reveal to us what you're like, not just your great power, but also your great love. And I think of the person here who has yet to, to welcome, to embrace you, to enter into a relationship with you. And I thank you that you would make that possible through the sending of your son. 
And if you're here now and you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus, I want to give you the, the opportunity to do that. You can just say a prayer like this. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of the Most High God. I believe that you came and that you died in my place to bear the penalty for my sin and that you can restore me to my senses, that you can give me your mind and that you can clothe me in your righteousness. And I want to invite you to do that. And I want to live for you all of my days. And all God's people said, amen. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In the event you didn't uh, pick up one of these on the way in, at the tables in the back, there are some of those. And just feel free to slip out right now and, and to grab one of those. When we celebrate this meal, for those of us who have been saved from the bondage to sin, we know that our rescue wasn't purchased at the expense of a herd of pigs. Our rescue was secured by Jesus giving his life in our place. And when we eat the bread, we remember his body, which was broken for us. And when we drink the cup, we remember the new covenant, which was ratified with his blood. And when we partake of these elements, we're reminded not only of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, but also of all the benefits that, that are ours in Christ Jesus. And I just realized that many of us probably brought with us into this space this morning. If you're anything like me, we brought, we brought our concerns, we brought our worries, we brought our burdens. And maybe for some, it's a, it's a health struggle. It's a, something serious going on. We're, we're awaiting the re results of some scans or we've, we've got a consultation coming up with the specialist. There's some blood work that's disconcerting. Maybe that, that's what you have going on or it's going on in the life of a loved one. Now, maybe for others, uh, what we brought in was um, just, just a relationship that's really messy right now. Where there was uh, once just a, a sweet sense of fellowship, it seems like now that there's, there's distance and division. It's a relationship with a child or a parent or a sibling or someone that was once a close friend. And maybe for others, just, just the challenge is some sort of financial struggle, something going on at work, some big project, just something hanging over our head. And when we partake of, of these elements, we're reminded of the one that we are united to, the one who has authority over all things. And that, and that same power that was able to drive out a legion of demons, we're reminded that that power is at work in our lives and nothing is able to separate us from His love. So in a moment, um, we're going to just provide some space for prayer. And I'd encourage you, I mean, this is the time to ask Jesus to put His power on display again in that area of your life where you might feel like you're hopeless. You might feel like you're struggling. You, you might feel like you, you need the omnipotent touch of God Almighty to come in. And if you want someone to pray with you at any time, you can just slip out and go to those tables in the back, and there'll they'll be, they'll be individuals that will be happy to pray with you. Uh, before we partake of the elements, I want to share with you an instruction that the Apostle Paul provided in 1 Corinthians 11. He wrote this in verse 27. He said, who, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What he means by that is that um, in order to properly partake of these elements, that we need to recognize that what qualifies us is not anything that's special that we've done. It's something that Jesus has done for us. Uh, these elements are all available to all those who, who recognize that Jesus has rescued us from the bondage of sin and that He's clothed us in His righteousness and given us His, His mind. And if that isn't you yet, I'd encourage you just to use this time to reflect on who Jesus is and His power and the, the relationship that He would want with you. Let's spend some time now in prayer for a moment, and then I'll bring us all together. Jesus, we come before you now in recognition of your great power. You speak, and the raging winds and the seas grow calm. You speak, and the demons flee. You speak, and the sick are healed, and the blind see, and the lame walk. And we are so grateful that you would leverage your power to give us this great guarantee that nothing can separate us from your love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, you know those areas of our life where we long to see your power on display, and I pray that as we partake of these elements that you would strengthen our faith, and that you would remind us of uh, all the benefits that come from being united to you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Praise the Lord. We have a great Savior. And uh, I'm going to invite you to stand now, and we're going to worship our great Savior together in song. <laughs> 